Hello, Spigola listener. It's Tony here. If you want to help the show, you can get your phone out right now and look up news.speakola.com. That is our Substack page, newsletter, hub. It's a place where fans of the podcast and visitors to the website and speech lovers generally can check in on what's going on in Speakola world. That is news.speakola.com. I send an email or two or three a week and they arrive in your inbox. They might be about a significant speech. Maybe the anniversary has come up or maybe a person's died or maybe there's no link to anything. I've just chosen it as a speech of interest. Send an email and it's a nice way to connect to the history of the world really. Love you to join up in any capacity, either as a free or a paid subscriber. I think about 60-odd people are paid subscribers now. Another 50 or so support the show through patreon.com forward slash speakola. If that's you, thank you very much. And if you're not able to chip in financially, thank you for spreading the news. Tell someone. So search me up, news.speakola.com. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we as a people will get to the promised land. Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome to the Speakola podcast. It's 11.35 here in Melbourne, PM. I've waited for the multitudinous Wilsons to go to bed in my house so that it's quiet. They have now, which means I can get on with the introduction to episode 45, a great episode of the podcast. It's a political one. Michael Cooney, he's a speechwriter to a prime minister. He was the speechwriter for Julia Gillard from 2010 to 2013. He's written a book, The Gillard Project, My Thousand Days of Despair and Hope. And these years from 2010 to 2013, they were incredibly significant in the history of Australia. It was Most of those years were spent as a minority government. And for all the negotiating and cattle trading, Julie Gillard got an enormous number of things done. She's loved in our house for the fact that the NDIS was passed. We've got a son with cerebral palsy. I write about him a lot, actually, on my personal substack, which is Good One Wilson. And Jenny Macklin and Julia Gillard deserve enormous credit for the fact that there's an insurance scheme for people who do have disabilities. In his book, Michael Cooney captures the achievements of those years and also the tumult. The Gillard years were marked by instability both within the Labor Party with Kevin Rudd looming as a shadow for all of those years, 2010 to 2013, but also a campaign waged by Tony Abbott, the opposition leader at the time, a a campaign where you could fairly say he played the woman and not the ball led to the misogyny speech, one of five speeches listed in Wikipedia's page of great speeches that I've trawled for speakola purposes. 
and the misogyny speech is right up there, rightly regarded as a classic. In fact, I think it was put in the National Sound Archive as a national treasure or some exalted status. So, yes, Julia Gillard's misogyny speech, Michael Cooney will talk a little bit about that. He didn't have a huge amount to do with that speech. But I love this chat just for the way it describes life in a prime ministerial office, the job. I mean, I write speeches and really it's the ultimate job to be that close to power and writing speeches consistently that are this important. We've actually got a former prime ministerial speechwriter who's one of the patrons at the patron page, and that's Paul Ritchie. He, he wrote for Tony Abbott and for Scott Morrison. And thank you for your contribution, Paul, if you're listening to this one. To a large degree, Speakola is listener-funded, and I'd love you to get on board at Patreon or news.speakola.com. But we also have a 10-week sponsor, and I'm grateful to DocPlay.com, a documentary streaming service. Worldwide, there's no better documentary streaming service. There are thousands of documentaries up on DocPlay. You might want to watch Navalny. He's the opposition leader that was poisoned by Vladimir Putin. And an Australian woman, Kim Trail, who did Race Around the World, as I did, she was a translator in the making of that film. There are sports docs, art docs, politics docs. There are documentaries on every topic you can imagine. Belushi is a great documentary about the life of John Belushi. Docplay.com is the streaming service. If you want to tell them that Speak Ola sent you, you go to docplay.com forward slash racks forward slash Speak Ola. And you get 45 days free. Well, I love this chat with Michael Cooney. He's a very fluent and funny man, and that's reflected both in his excellent book, I highly recommend it, and also this episode, which I hope you hang around and listen to. Michael Cooney. Well, hello, Michael Cooney. And I thought I might even start with a confession Okay, go on. Hello, <laughs> Tony. It's, this isn't the first time I've been here, is it, Michael? <laughs> no, it's not. How long has it been since your last confession, Tony? It's exactly 24 hours. And I'm speaking to devout Catholic Michael Cooney about the fact that I came here yesterday without my recorder <laughs> <laughs> and went home reasonably rapidly afterwards. But I'm back again and I'm very pleased to be here, Michael. It is a huge honour and thrill to speak to someone who held a speechwriter position in the loftiest climes and in turbulent times as well. In 2010 to 2013, a thousand days of despair and hope is what you called your book, Michael. Gillard Speechwriter, tell us a little bit, how did that come to happen? I had been a Labor advisor for about 10 years before Julie Gillard became Prime Minister and a Labor activist for, I guess, another 10 years or so before that, maybe five years before that. So I had been a Labor Party member and been active in the party in the ACT where I grew up in Canberra. And then at the start of 2002, I went to work for a 
a little-known Labor politician, Mark Latham, who was at that time the Assistant Shadow Treasurer and Shadow Minister for Economic Ownership and Community Security. And you came up with Medicare Gold, did you, Mark? Was that all you? <laughs> I was around. Medicare Gold wasn't the worst thing we did that yeah. year, I'll tell you what. <laughs> well, it was an amazing ascent. And it's funny, I mean, I was going to ask you at some point in the interview, we might as well do it now, because he really was, you know, the great hope for lots of left-leaning, progressive Australians who saw him as a different sort of Labor leader. And uh, you were there, and, and yet we've also seen this descent into, I mean, it almost seems like madness at the moment. What was he like as a figure? Was, he, was there any sense that, there was, that this bubbled away within him? <laughs> Look, people around him who weren't working for him certainly said so at the time. People who knew Mark prior to that. Working for him, like in his office as opposition leader through 2004, we never had some sense that we were covering for a crazy person who was going mad in private. So it wasn't like that. Oh, in fact, and I had a, a professional relationship with him and an effective one while he was working there. He, he also got on very well with, with Julia Gillard, actually. He was on his front bench. Uh, and that's more or less how I got to know Julia. They had offices next to each other in Parliament House for the first 18 months. But no, people who'd known Mark longer than I had at that time aren't surprised by the subsequent course of his career, it'd be fair to say. And was there a speech you wrote for Mark Latham that's, that you're particularly proud of? Or were you even a speechwriter back then? Or were you much more on the policy side of oh, things? At that time, I was more on the policy side. I I'd contributed to his speeches in the parliament and speeches that he would give in sort of thought leadership environments. He often spoke to Fabian audiences and things like that um, when he was on the front bench. But then when he was Labor leader, uh, a very good speechwriter, still active in Melbourne, Dennis Glover was his speechwriter. He'd written for Simon Cream previously and later wrote uh, some terrific speeches for Wayne Swan. So when Mark was Labor leader, I was his policy director. And I and through that period, up until going to work for, for Julia Gillard as Prime Minister, I mostly was a policy advisor and contributed some speeches on security issues in particular. Yeah. And so you mentioned you got to know Julia because she was mm. working in the next office. And in fact, this, the, the book begins with the confusion you felt in the early days of the job, whether to call her Prime Minister or Julia, and particularly publicly when you're in front of people. Um, how, how did you get appointed? And, and that, I mean, you mentioned a Bruce Springsteen track playing <laughs> you into your new life. Can you sort of take us back to that moment? I had, yeah, I'd worked closely with, with Julia Gillard when she was on the opposition front bench prior to... 2006 up to 2006 when Kevin Rudd became Labor leader uh, I was sort of lowered over the city walls like St Paul in a basket fleeing um, fleeing Damascus and I went and did some other things for four years I was one of many Australians on Kevin's list so that was so that, gave, did, me, that gave me a break how did you hit the list uh, I, you I, um, for Beasley? I was I had worked for Beasley and for Latham I was on Kevin's list after Mark said that we would have our troops out by Christmas from Iraq in 2004. And from then on, uh, I was on Kevin's list. So, Because so, he disagreed with that idea? Yeah, yeah. And he sort of thought that I'd kept it from him, which I hadn't actually. Not that it's all lost in the years now, but um, I'm sure I would have ended up on his list for something else eventually. <laughs> so I did have a little bit of a break. And then from yeah, in late in 2010, after the election my predecessor, Tim Dixon, a bloke who does some very interesting work these days in the Northern Hemisphere with um, uh, Hope Not Hate stuff and also is still active in Australia through the Chifley Research Centre, the Labor Party's think tank. Anyway, Tim had done some time with Beasley and then stayed through the whole Rudd period and into the Gillard transition and he was going to finish up. He went with the PM to Bathurst for the Light on the Hill speech that she gave in, I guess, October that year, September that year. Uh, while he was up there, let her know that he was going to give it away. 
um, that he'd run his race and suggested that she should bring me back into that role. It was sort of evident that I'd do something now that Kevin wasn't the Prime Minister and I was allowed. <laughs> but um, but we hadn't quite decided what. So anyway, I got this nice text message back from, from Tim saying that they'd spoken in the car after the after the Light of the Hill speech and that I should expect to call on Monday morning. And yes, I was driving back to Canberra from a Collingwood preliminary final victory over Geelong and... Gave, yeah, did, well, I did turn the radio. I did, did turn the sound system up after I got that message. Yeah. And the job of speechwriter, what what sort of qualified you for it? Is it just that it became known that you were you were strong around a a speech around how to construct one? And and is is it a big step from going from policy to speechwriting, or is it really the same thing? But you just got a bit of a knack with sentences as well. That's a really good question. It's a bit of, a bit of all those things. I had I, my back. My education was in English and philosophy, um, and I'd always written a lot of opinion columns for politicians and for others, and f- under my own name at times too, uh, and contributed to speeches. So, and as a policy director, I often was an editor of speeches, I suppose, and often involved in finalising speeches. So I'd been around the speech process heaps. It was a little bit of they needed a speechwriter. I was around. I'd written for Julia before, mostly jokes and stuff. But so I wasn't at that time. I went into it. I wasn't sure that's what I'd be doing for the whole of the next three years necessarily. But then on the other hand, the truth is, speechwriting is a really fun job in the office, and its external prestige is out of all proportion to its real influence or um, and possibly even its workload. There are many harder working people in the office. It's in Australian football terms, you're a bit of a receiver as a speechwriter. You're, you're sort of running around the outside, in, a bit of an outside player in front of the in front of the fans. And there's there's other people working way harder, putting their head in hard places. Yeah. Are you really saying that you don't have that much say, or you don't do that much with the decision making? You really you're giving it voice. The decisions are made, and you give it voice. Yeah, even where you're doing a heavy policy speech, and some speech. To your question is like, is it the same thing as policy directing? Sometimes a speech is a big policy coordination task, and sometimes a government, a complex government policy, is announced through the form of a speech. You know, they read out a four thousand word essay, and that's the, that's the policy. At other times, it's quite different from that. So. Nevertheless, whenever that we, even in a policy speech, you know, policy is made by cabinet and by ministers, and strongly shaped and and in some respects influenced by policy advisors. The comms work should, in, uh, particularly speech writing, is kind of post decision. Your starting point is well, here's the here's the decision. Now we're going to go out and explain it, and uh, and that's as it should be. Like you know, speech writers don't generally get elected, so so you want you'd, you'd like to, it's better to be post decision, I think. And so, who were your overlords in the office when you were there? So it's an interesting role. You typically report like functionally, you report to the communications director. Um, so that's the person who's also the boss of the media manager, press secretaries, the sort of social media team, stuff like that. But in practice, you have a mix of a direct connection to the prime minister and a close connection to the policy unit because most often the long stuff you're doing is policy unit work. And on the other hand, the press secs, love them as I do, like their phones just don't stop ringing. Well, we just didn't turn our phone off for the conversation they just can't do ever. So it's pretty hard to have a 15-minute meeting with the press secretary or communications director because they, they'll be on the phone for 12 of those 15 minutes. So in practice, you work closely with the leader and or the prime minister and, and with the policy team. And just to get a sense of how you really were, you know, one of the first choices for this job, you, you were sort of feeding lines to... Julia Gillard, even before you were in Canberra, like you mentioned the the grand final breakfast speech. Oh. 
which is a, it's a really funny line you put in. Um, because obviously that was the year where there's a hung parliament and she's done the deals afterwards with mm. Wilkie and the other independents in order to secure governments. And, mm. and, and what, what did you, who did you send your suggested line to? I think what happened was uh, Tim Dixon, who was writing for the PM at the time, would have, particularly for a short, funny breakfast speech, like that North Melbourne breakfast speech, you often just need like lots of ideas. So he said, I wasn't the only person he sent a draft to saying, have you got any thoughts? And I, well, the only thing I could think of was to say, as the PM said, one thing I do know is this, please, please, we cannot have a draw. Our nation <laughs> just couldn't bear it. So they all laughed and thought it was very, very funny because the election had more or less been a draw, you know, like <laughs> we won, but it was it did take a bit of a replay, you might say. So, um, yeah. And yeah, that uh, that got a good laugh at the time, and then afterwards, got a, uh, later that day, when it, when it was a draw, the prime minister was considered a prophet. That's incredible, <laughs> That's, isn't it? It was pretty hilarious. Yeah. And, and you were there. That you're coming with support. Happy day for you all round. Uh, the the draw was a long and stressful day. It was a it was an so I was starting in the office on the following Monday, a very memorable time of my life. Really, like it was just an amazing period after a long period out of federal advising work. Previous couple of years, I've been working for the ACT government, and one of the one of the weird things I had been doing had been working closely with the AFL about the startup for GWS Giants and what role they'd play in Canberra football and at Manic Oval. One way or another, I was on their list for the games, right? So, so, so I came down for the grand final with my wife, saw Julia, said hello, hadn't seen her for a couple of years. Starting on Monday, like we'd spoken on the phone, but you know, had a bit of a hug, went outside, shouted my head off for three hours. <laughs> didn't realise until very late in the game that I really was almost the only Collingwood fan anywhere near me and that everyone was barracking for St Kilda. And, I mean, fair enough, they're the underdogs and we're never the underdogs. So when Travis Cloak scored his last quarter goal, I just jumped up and out of my seat and roared. And I looked around on one of those sort of second-tier decks up in the, um, in the Northern Stand, in the, um, yeah, in the Northern Stand, and looked around and no one else was standing. <laughs> I thought, oh, jeez. <laughs> you say in the book that Andrew Demetrio remembered the performance when he saw you? He did, actually. I saw him about a year later. He did many good things in his careers. Obviously, he remains a polarising figure like many people, but he um, he was very engaged in social inclusion and he was uh, assisting on some, on some commissioned work for the government in that area. And I saw him and said, uh, oh, thanks for the grand final ticket. He said, yeah, yeah, no, I remember you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's a chapter in my in my memoir coming, and I said, "Oh, what sort of mad fans I've sat in here?" And he said, "No, no, just you." No. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he meant it too. Actually, I don't think he was just pulling my leg. I took it as a compliment. I'm not sure that's how it was intended. Well. I always put a feature speech at the end of a speaker episode and I've been sort of torn on this one because you've worked on so many speeches and it might be that we end up just putting snippets of speeches mm. throughout the episode. But I think if we are going to choose one feature speech, it might be the Mick Young speech, which you open your book mm. with and which I think is an early speech in your time as a speechwriter. You might not have even written it all yourself, but it, it's a magnificent speech. It's such a... It's such a labour speech, isn't it? The, the, this tribute to Mick Young after he's passed um, at a Mick Young dinner, I think it was. Yeah, there, there was at that time a, a trust or a foundation um, in Mick's name which raised funds for um, technical um, for scholarships for technical training, and uh, it was they ran they would run a, a dinner in Sydney every year. And it was a terrific labour event, um, and obviously Mick Young is such a significant figure in labour's story and so and culture in so many ways. And yeah, early in 2011, the PM went down there to, to speak on a Friday night. Very, mem- very memorable evening in many ways. And it was, a, it was a speech that worked really well, actually. It was an interesting, like a lot of offices, uh, the PM had, like a lot of PM's offices, ours had two speechwriters. 
was myself and a bloke called Carl Green. Um, not an unusual sort of separation of powers anyway. I sort of tended to do big, long policy speeches, major political stuff. Carl was really good at like nice events. Um, we're both pretty good on the Labor Party, but in different ways. Carl, Carl's a real Whitlamite, basically, <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> so that made the mixed story a very interesting one to write about because Young's a sort of a transitional figure between the Whitlamite Labor Party and then the Labor Party of the 1980s. So anyway, we both had a had a good go at it. Uh, Carl added some of the much uh, more kind of warmer and uh, funnier lines, and I added some of the, my bits were the, the edgier bits about convicts and and uh, and redcoats. Yeah. Stoking the fires of war, class war, were you, Michael? Hundred percent, hundred percent. And the speech was down there near the near the tank stream in Sydney. And uh, Sydney's not my favourite city in Australia, but it's got some things going for it. And so it was a nice place to talk about the origins of white Australia too. You mentioned the uniforms. What is it? The, the well, M- M- Mick Young had this. Mick Young um, was a, a contemporary of a different of a of a Liberal politician, Reg Withers, who was the Fraser's Senate leader in the dismissal crisis. Toe cutter was his nickname, which is not a bad nickname. <laughs> in those days, not many Liberals got that kind of nickname too. So <laughs> Withers was a pretty tough West Australian Liberal politician. Sort of Max the Axe is the one. That I'm kind of guy, Max yeah, the Axe, yeah. More Wilton, yeah, yeah. So you know, you don't get a nickname like Toe Cutter for no good reason. Anyway, Withers had this saying that there were two sides in Australian politics, and there always had been since the first bloke in a red coat put his boot up the ass of the first bloke with a white shirt and black arrows on it. And in the speech, the PM goes on to say, and Michael Jerome Young was never on the red coat side. <laughs> and, and she asked you to boost that sort of stuff up a bit. Did she? She read the initial drafts and she said this needs a little bit more. Yeah, I, just, I think about that bit. I mean, what, there was a particular discussion about part of the flavour of the speech was about cunning and courage. And there'd been some debate about whether in 2010 Labor had shown too much cunning and not enough courage. That was a quarterly essay or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, Maybe I think. Well, John Faulkner, Faulkner had also given a speech about it. Um, and look, I'm not saying he didn't have a point. Um, but what was interesting in this speech was we more or less said you need both. You need the courage, yep, and you also need the cunning, and they drive each other on. Um, and this was intended as a, if not a, a rebuttal, at least a kind of a conscious response to to Faulkner's thesis that we that we needed more courage and a bit less cunning. And because there was some controversy around those comments, you, you actually start to really, inter- for people who are interested in speech writing and, and speech making and the process of how the speech gets from the page to the lectern, mm-hmm. you give us a real kind of behind the scenes <laughs> glimpse because it's already, you know, the, the gates, the lights are flashing and the gates are open mm-hmm. and the Prime Minister is getting in the car to go to the event mm-hmm. and you're getting calls from... Yeah, one of the press secretaries was very exercised that this line would cause us would cause us problems. So he made me more or less run down the corridor after her before she got in the lift to say, "Oh, you know, it's about that Faulkner thing, right?" And she was like, "Yeah, yeah." And that was where I said actually, because because she had it back to me and was walking with the cops, more or less going into the lift as I was ten or fifteen feet behind her. I called that Julia, and as soon as they did, I thought, "No, nah, that's <laughs> I should have said PM." Anyway, she didn't mind, but the cops thought it was a bit weird, and she was like, "Yeah, yeah, I know," and then went down in the lift. But I think. I think the media unit was still so anxious about it that they didn't actually issue the speech that night to the general media. And the speech was only reported a couple of weeks or maybe a few days. Anyway, the speech was reported a bit later as being the sort of the talk of the town because of this Faulkner element. What about settling into the rhythms of it? 
You mentioned it's a nice little, I love the recurring motif of the windowless room mm. inside the windowless room. Because mm. I guess I always pictured when I read um, Recollections of a Bleeding Heart, and we've had Don Watson on the podcast, I always pictured that you're, you're kind of right there next to the Prime Minister. And it's going <laughs> to be quite nice and you're sort of in his ear or her ear and mm. and there's a sense of, you know, it must be a little bit special. You might even have a, a tea person who comes around and delivers <laughs> you a little scone and a, <laughs> and a, and a, and a, and a shop-made coffee. But it d- oh, doesn't sound like that at all in the windowless room inside the windowless room. Yeah, um, Freudian Mills might have had, might have still had tea, tea people. <laughs> I don't know, but um, no, by our start, by our time, we'd run out of, we'd run out of tea people. But um, New Palm House is a beautiful building, right? I love it. Loved working there. Still love going there. Um, fantastic, fantastic building. Incredible soundscape too, um, especially in the evenings when it's really quiet. And it's also true, more or less true, that the uh, more important your job is in Parliament House, the worse your office is. You sort of there are these fantastic big offices on the outside of the Senate and rep swings, but they're miles from the chambers and miles from everything else. So they have those huge picture windows of, of the Canberra horizon, which is also a spectacular sight. Anyway, I was not there. So <laughs> <laughs> I was down in the, the Prime Minister's office is on the ground floor uh, to the north of the of the central part of the building. I was in a sort of a side space there, which is part near the cabinet room in a large room and then inside that large room was a smaller room and it was like but it was honestly like working in a safe um, like when you shut these doors it went clunk like it was amazing you'd have a little television in the corner which you could had 70 channels including lots of different angles of the chambers so if you worked for a minister or, or a backbench you could have it focused on them and you'd know when they left and also news channels and stuff like that but also a camera in the roof of the building so you could see like natural light in inverted commas we sometimes have that on in this room Anyway, I'd sit in there, it was quiet. But then you'd walk out and go and hang out in the office and talk to the PM and do other things. But then come back in there to slam the door shut and write 3,000 words in four hours or whatever we'd have to do. And so what was your daily routine? Were you there at 7am or were you more like a 9am arrive and then work till midnight? Or had you know it- what, honestly, uh, one, of the, one of the things which that life left me with is I... Every day when I arrive at work, I feel guilty about how late I am. No matter what time I arrive at work, 8.15am, I still feel like I'm slack. And every day when I leave the office, uh, I feel like I'm leaving early, no matter what time I leave. Um, in sitting weeks, I suppose I got in between 7 and 7.30 or something like that. There were plenty of people already there by then. And it would depend a bit on sitting. Again, sittings, you tended to stay later. The odd thing about the speech writing job is, apart from some really rushed work on a parliamentary sitting day before question time, maybe... You're usually working on something in three or four days. Some people are working on something in like five minutes. So you're a little more in control of your own time. But no, a lot, lot generally left after dark, yeah. Didn't often let it, especially in winter, goodness, yeah. yeah. And were you crunching like you, you do, like, okay, I've got two hours to finish this one, then I've got three yeah. hours to do that one, and I've actually got four speeches to do today, and I'll each get three hours. Yeah, and then you'd have to sort of, the other part of writing it is that having done your version of the draft, you then had to send it out to get five billion comments on it. So there'd be these odd stop-start moments where you're waiting to hear back from a minister or a policy advisor or, or the PM for that, like someone, about the draft. So you'd be drafting one and then send it out and then go to the corner and maybe go and get an ice cream or something, come back and then write the next one, yeah. But I suppose in any given week, between the two of us, we would write three or four like major speeches. It would be 3,500 words about something quite big and several other five or ten minutes kind of openings of an event or a thank you or and sometimes they're quite tricky and sensitive and demanding and then often also 
other kinds of odd things. Where are things like congratulatory messages and co- complex correspondence, I suppose you'd say? Sort of a nice message to the retiring... Uh, when um, Rodney Eade retired from... Or I don't think he retired, actually. But when, Ro- when Rodney Eade left the Bulldogs, um, the PM obviously wanted to send him a nice message and so I had to do the first draft and then she obviously did her own stuff with it. But yeah, That'll so. break Rodney's heart that she didn't really write she definitely it. Wrote, she definitely <laughs> overwrote it, Rod. I'm sure if Rocket's listening... I know Rocket. I'm going to send him this, <laughs> this interview and, and he will... He's that letter that he has in a frame at his house will be taken it's down. In the, I'm sure it's in the PM's <laughs> It's, it's an original writing, yeah. Michael Cooney, Rocket. Um, and 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 so the I mean I was going to ask you I actually laughed because I had my little list of questions and I was going mm. to ask you about the the West Wing because we've all got our image uh. I think of you know people in high places in politics writing speeches it has become subsumed by images of uh, Toby Ziegler and Sam whatever he's Sam Seaborn Sam Seaborn in the West Wing and the kind of relationship and the beautiful emotive storylines and and then I read in your book that you sort of like one of the weights that the the, the administration not the administration that the government carried was that you were getting all this kind of crap I guess from the from the press that these young things in Canberra, these Labor left-leaning acolytes, that they're now thinking they're all Sam Seaborn and, and Toby Ziegler. So you sort of, you kind of railed against that, I, I gather. My question's going to annoy you. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, actually. I was, these days, I think, I think columns about West Wing obsessions have probably passed. So if I was to rant about West Wing obsession columns, I'd probably look a little bit like the kind of person who in 2010 was ranting about people who are obsessed with the West Wing. Because <laughs> yeah. in turn, that was already quite outdated even then. But yeah, it's... Um, oh, it, my, my oldest daughter uh, once teased me that she'd known me so long and seen my career in politics. Oh, she, she knew me before I was Toby Ziegler back when I was still Sam Seaborn, <laughs> which was quite... That's a good... Good. That's a good paternal sledge, isn't it? It was Lovely. pretty. It was pretty rough, but she, well, I'm not saying it was off the mark. But uh, <laughs> the, the beard. I, I noticed how dark and full the beard was <laughs> yeah, in, uh, yeah. in the photos. In, in the some middle photos, of this excellent yeah, yeah. Book. yeah. But oh, look, there are people. In it, like it's very exciting. It's amazing. It's an incredible privilege. It's super fun, and you do. I mean, there's not. But people, there's this old joke that politics is showbiz for ugly people, um, and it's also kind of. Most people in politics also weren't very popular at school, you know, and most of them aren't ever going to fly around on a Boeing business jet before that job or after that job ever, right? Um, and yeah, it's got some exciting bits. You shake some pretty famous hands, and you can let it go to your head. People, you see people who do let it go to their heads, but most people are actually um, very occasionally allow themselves a moment, more or less, pinch themselves a bit. There's definitely moments where you think, "How did I get here?" Um, and you sort of want to send your dad a text saying thanks and all that, but. Um, but mostly people are working pretty hard to keep a lid on it most of the time, actually. And look, it wouldn't only be political advisors who sometimes get carried away with their position in the world. Occasionally there might be a journalist who thinks they're in the um, the blue room getting briefed, yeah. I love this little paragraph that you put in sort of on this topic where you said, uh, the best part of that job was always hating parts of that job, catching yourself, not being excited anymore, and then thinking, man, I'm really doing it. This was everything <laughs> we'd come for. You know, that's, that's true, isn't it? Whenever anything hard is happening that that idea of of just never stopping to actually enjoy what you've achieved mm. this is actually when you were back there in the 90s as a as a uni kid mm. who was into politics this is you're actually flying with the prime minister to america mm. and she's telling you what this trip is going to be about it was interesting i read with that with interest as well that she would give because she knew you all had to listen when you're sitting in front of her 
on a plane and that you wouldn't be off doing other things or she she actually had everyone's attention she'd give the kind of coach's address before you touched down is, is that do you remember that that's one? a good way to put it actually yes often one of the challenges of of speech writing in particular i suppose it's true of all political coordination but speech speeches as an example of that is trying to get the commander's intent as they would say in defense world like, and the selection and maintenance of the aim and in turn if no if, if you know if you've heard it but no one else has heard it you spend a fair bit of your time trying to say no no this is what she's asked for so it's pretty good to be on a plane where she just tells everyone at once. The secretary of DFAT, the chief of staff, the comms director, the speechwriter. So we're not going to have some other week of runaround where people are you know, saying, oh, no, 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 she told me she wanted this. So that was actually quite handy. And it was always great because it didn't really matter what... Like, it's never frustrating when your own ideas are overridden by the principal because it's their speech. That's like, it's no false modesty there. Genuinely, that is like, great. You just want to know what they want and give it to them. But sometimes you do feel like you're digging to find out what they want. Yeah, I did. I like the way you mentioned that, mate, it's not my first novel. It's fine. It, uh, you can't be too precious with the prose, right? No, I think that Damon Runyon, I think it might have been said, um, you always have to, in screenwriting, you're always wearing your second best suit. Um, and speech writing is definitely like that. And so what did she say in the plan? What was the purpose of yeah, that so American on, trip? Yeah, so this was March 2011. So March 2011, Prime Minister flew to uh, initially Washington, D.C. and then on to New York. Um, she'd been invited to address a joint sitting of the Congress, which was pretty exciting. Uh, John Howard had done that and Bob Hawke had done that. So it was pretty historic. She had a fair bit of business to do with President Obama. They had similar outlook on some key issues, including climate including his pivot to Asia. And then also we were going on to New York because we had inherited the bid to uh, get Australia onto the UN Security Council. So it was a big trip and, um, and, and an overseas bilateral trip like that over a week, especially in the US, goodness me, there are a lot of speeches, right? So we got on the plane with tens of thousands of words already drafted and there'd been an awful lot of work done beforehand. And I wouldn't say I hadn't spoken to the PM before I got on the plane, but we hadn't had much time to talk about it. And so we'd done a lot of drafts which more which more or less worked in one way or another on a theme that that we would that we wanted the US to engage in the region. We wanted the US to engage in the Pacific, not just the Atlantic. And what was interesting was when we got into the first meetings, the PM more or less nixed that and said, No, 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 I don't want to call on them to I want to take that for granted. We're gonna we're not gonna tell them to engage over here because we don't want to make it sound like that's even a conditional. What I want to do, she said, is buck up their optimism and tell them to be bold and be know be courageous and be be um uh, be expansive and this is you know the kind of a post great recession world for them and the beginnings i suppose that you could see already even then in, in obama's first term of the kind of domestic malaise and division that they would face in the following years so the pm said no like, we're not we're not saying look west or turn to china or something or can, turn to the pacific we're going to say be bold going to give them a shoulder massage and tell them they're the best tell them they're Come the on. best and look they're good at hearing that <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't argue with us <laughs> but you could tell that in a way they they weren't sure and they appreciated hearing it it was also so it's in turn a very diplomatic and smart and clever thing to say you know no one ever minds being flattered but but it was like uh, the pm finding a way to back in the president's policy in a way that worked for australia's interests and that would would reach across and also was a very it wasn't a left-leaning message that would be part received as a partisan message within the u.s system would be seen as a unifying message from an australian leader rather than from an australian labor leader so i think that was all all those things were sort of implicit in the way the pm sort of framed that whole visit the eyes of the world are still upon you your city on a hill cannot be hidden 
your brave and free people have made you the masters of recovery and reinvention. As I stand before you in this, this cradle of democracy, I see a nation that changed the world, a nation that has known remarkable days. I firmly believe you are the same people who amazed me when I was a small girl by landing on the moon. On that great day, I believed Americans could do anything. I believe that still. And she was getting Obama to do handballs of the footy <laughs> of the Sharon in the Oval Office. And, and, and you mentioned in the book that he, he, he took the unusual step of, you know, delivering her back to her hotel, you know, with him still sort of chatting to her as he, she's dropped off at... Yeah, at the, they, had, they had an Oval Office meeting the day before the Congress speech. And then following the Oval Office meeting, they uh, went in a motorcade to a school in Virginia and um, into a classroom and hung out with some kids and talked about education. They had very similar education outlook, uh, outlooks on domestic education policy to the PM and the President. Talked to the kids and then uh, when the... So they'd driven down over there in different parts of the motorcade. He's in the beast, as they call it, and, and the Prime Minister's not in the beast. He's in another car. <laughs> and then when they left the uh, when they left the school talking, he basically said, oh, do you want to ride with me? In the beast? In the beast. So she hopped in the back seat. Is it called the beast because of all the bulletproof glass yeah, on it? Yeah, it's his name. It's his name <laughs> that people have for it, you know. <laughs> and so, I don't know what they really call that, but they call that in the papers anyway. So um, And so then this... And the motorcades... I mean, Washington, D.C. is full of motorcades a lot, actually, and around, as is New York around the UN building. But... Um, it's a, a presidential motorcade is a really big motorcade yeah. <laughs> and uh, this thing rolls it. We were staying for a couple of days at a place called Blair House, which is kind of the president's guest house just across from the White House, basically. Did Bush call it that when he got particularly nice support? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, it's named after a guy who owned it in the 19th century and there's a whole you know story about how it got to be named that way and all the rest of it. Um, it features in, uh, in the movie Lincoln, actually, with Daniel Day-Lewis. But anyway, he sort of the motorcade then pulled up like down the road from the White House, just kind of like this, like he was dropping her off after school. And the PM says, thanks, and just hops out and runs in. <laughs> and then the motorcade starts up again and drives off. And like, everyone was like, did that really just happen? Like, it was pretty full on. So, they, they had a genuine rapport, yeah. And what about you? Did you get your Obama moment? Did you get to have a chat to him or shake his I, hand? I, or? I, 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 my room that week did have a window, but I, <laughs> but I didn't leave that room during the day until basically the day we spoke at Congress, the, the day she spoke in the Congress. So, so that day, on that Tuesday, I was really in my bedroom a large comfortable bedroom i'm not complaining but like <laughs> all day writing this speech over and over and over and just doing countless versions of this long complicated congress speech but when the president came back to australia the following year and visited the parliament and spoke there i found an excuse to be standing in a crucial corridor at a crucial time and and as the Prime Minister was walking past, she managed to introduce me and I got a handshake. So I'm pretty sure he remembers it pretty well. Yeah, so your beard was very striking. Yeah. In terms of the speeches on that trip, I was interested in the book you mentioned that the Prime Minister was delivering a speech at the Vietnam War Memorial and you had a personal connection. You managed to sort of get that in into the speech. Yeah, the um, famous Vietnam Veterans Memorial on the National Mall in Washington is that sort of wall that goes down and then comes back up and all yeah, the names are on the wall. And in 2011, Australia opened a, an Australian interpretive centre nearby, basically to, to document Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War, which was pretty cool for me to get to write because my father served with 8RR in, in uh, South Vietnam and 
1970. And so we managed to, I managed to get in a nice thing because on the other hand, it's a complicated war to commemorate. There's some, you know, fairly ahistorical speeches given about war in Australia from time to time. But Vietnam's one that you've really got to be careful. You've got to try and get right because, you know, the Prime Minister was old enough to have opposed it herself, no doubt, at school. And certainly the Labor Party had a complicated relationship with the Vietnam War and all that. So we had, I wanted to try and capture that. And the nice way that, that sort of struck a chord with my experience was that my father's older sister, uh, while he was in Vietnam, marched in the moratorium marches in Melbourne and is the quintessential peace activist of 1970 who clearly wasn't opposed to the... clearly wasn't, you know, angry with the troops, was angry with the commitment and the war. So I managed to persuade the Prime Minister to say something about that at the end of the speech. And the paragraph read, I know Australians who will visit this centre. The Nasho who patrolled Phuc Toy, his sister who marched in the moratorium, they will remember what the war means to Australia and what it meant to them. Many other Australians will pay tribute here. The children the grandchildren, they will not only remember, they will learn. They were yours, Michael, those words. <laughs> I was really like, well, I be, only because the Prime Minister said them, but yeah, it was nice. And so, that, yeah, that's my dad and my aunt, yeah. And it was nice to sort of capture the complexity of that war, clearly, um, but at the same time, yeah, also just, it was that, that's one of those little moments where you pinch yourself a bit. Yeah, that might have been a little bit West Wing, yeah. <laughs> and, and you did slip in the line, just as you said, the ambiguities of, of, of writing for someone who might have opposed the war, like or did oppose the war, the Vietnam War, which, which was controversial then and controversial now. So that line went in? I think in the end, we, so the, we had this huge Barney, like not, not a screaming match, but there was it was in the speech when the PM went to bed the night before the speech and then there was this big blow up because the DFAT guys, the, the foreign officials and others thought it was going to be problematic or whatever and I think in the end we took it out actually to please them because it was too late at night and I certainly wasn't going to go and wake the Prime Minister up to fight about it but in the end we, the PM did then get asked the following day are you saying you supported the war? Because <laughs> this line was out and I was like, well, guys, you know, no, but could have been a notice, you know. <laughs> so we could have been, the speech could have been even a little bit better. <laughs> so, and in terms of sort of getting the nice little literary references, I notice how often you've got, you know, you quote Yeats and other poets and screenwriters and you do find these quotes. I mean, how often... How often do you have liberty and license to put them in? Was that more your co-speech writer's strength? Um, how much do you need to make a speech sound nice versus do the political jobs? That's a really key dilemma because obviously the speech writers always want it to sound nice and there might even be a little bit of professional pride in that sometimes. For a speech to work, even a heavy political speech that's got policy lifting to do or something, it still has to have a positive effect on the people in the room and it still has to sound good. And I thought that particularly for someone who was sometimes underestimated, like the Prime Minister I worked for, um, showing her full range and the fact that she was a woman with a hinterland was also politically salient. So those were part of the reason why we do that stuff. But Carl and I both had uh, quite a different range of reading, I suppose, but like like that kind of thing. And I think often people appreciate it, particularly in an audience. You can do too much of it and it can look like you're name-dropping, but, um, but it often adds a bit of a lift and... Um, and not all politicians do it. And, you know, uh, Prime Minister Gillard liked that. She she used to like to tell the story that she'd won a prize uh, as a school-age kid for, um, for for Bible quotes in a catechism class as a, um, as a non-conformist, I suppose. She must have been Welsh. Well, um, I've got that in common with her. I, I won a chalk wedge for... Um, <laughs> 
for naming the books of the New Testament in order. Amazing. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Off I went. <laughs> I, w- uh, I wish I could think of some uh, some iconic South Australian brand that you know Julia would have won some food prize in. But anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs> my was mem- there, was memory there, fails me. Was there a quote where, what's your favourite one you got in? And what's the weirdest person you quoted? Did you ever oh. have a quoting chop a read or someone <laughs> insane like that? Was there a... Here's a funny thing we did. About every year, the, the PM gave speeches about education when she was Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Education and, and as Shadow Minister for Education in 2007 and gave speeches on education in which she quoted George W. Bush had a nice expression about the soft bigotry of low expectations. So when Julie was doing her thing about hard work and high standards and how the best way for kids to get social mobility was to be taught properly basically and have opportunity to flourish and that was her story and the She'd say, as George W. Bush even would say, the soft bigotry of low expectations. We said this every year, and I just got to, partly because Bush got less and less popular as every year went on. Yeah. And despite being a good expression, it seemed a bit weird by about 2011 or 12 to keep crediting Bush. So sometime in 2012, I was like, can't we just say soft bigotry of low expectations? And in the text, like in the document, it was in scare quote, it was in quotation marks. But unsurprising when the PM was reading it into the record in Parliament, she didn't sort of do big, you know, rabbit fingers or something for the quote. And then we get calls during the afternoon from gallery journalists saying, oh, she's plagiarised this line from George W. Bush. <laughs> and we're like, are you joking? Like, like, it'd be like saying you'd plagiarised Ask Not. Like, it was such a widely known... Like, of course it's a reference. Of course it's a reference. Yeah. You'd also find yourself having to particularly as the age of Google just grew and grew on us all, check every stupid quote. So the, the very famous quote attributed to um, the golfer Gary Player, the South African golfer from the 70s and 80s, who said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. You know, good luck trying to prove that he ever said it right. Yeah. Who cares? But what you'd have to do is, you know, cloud these speeches up. It, just, it was often like a little, what's the way we can get this caveat in without completely stuffing the point of the story, you know? So once we wrote something like, um, if it wasn't Gary Player who said dot, 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 it should have been or something like that, yeah, you know, yeah, you had yeah. to find these ways because some idiot would say, you know, you got it wrong. And sometimes we had got it wrong on a, not a quote, but a kind of a historical reference that nearly made us fall over when we heard this story. So the PM gave also a Vietnam speech on, um, must have been on Long Tan Day, probably in 2012. The PM... Uh, in a nice speech, reflects on the fact that it's really all in the history now, in the history books now. All the leading figures of the war are gone: Johnson, McNamara, Ho Chi Minh, General Gap. You know, it's now just these handful of veterans left. Anyway, anyway General Gap was alive. <laughs> it was a hundred, right? He celebrated. <laughs> Ten days later, he celebrates his hundredth birthday in a nursing home in Vietnam. I wasn't happy about being I killed. Look, off. They didn't. Happily enough, he was not available for comment. But the, but the, but and it wasn't even the Australian. It was the Sydney Morning Herald who pointed this out, and we gee, we were generally embarrassed that day. That was just like what a thing. That's the kind of thing you don't check. You don't think, oh, is General Gap still alive? You know. Well, one I loved one speech. I thought was just really beautiful. I don't. I don't know whether. You wrote it, Michael, but it was the 2012 speech at Gallipoli. And I put up a few of the Prime Ministerial War commemoration speeches. I guess most famous is the Paul Keating one to the unknown soldier. But this is a a beautiful speech given at the the dawn service at Gallipoli, 2012. Do you remember that one? I do. The previous year, the PM had been also overseas on Anzac Day in Korea. And at the site of the Battle of Kapyong, which was a 
a very complicated fighting retreat fought by the RAR there. And then in 2012, she was at Gallipoli, which is obviously a pretty special place. The main thing I remember about the previous year was that the whole theme of the speech was about the sun coming up at dawn and so on. And because they were in Korea and in April, the sun comes up at about 1am. So they had to change this speech at the last minute when they realised that it was going to be quite some hours after dawn when this speech was being delivered. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so they butchered, you know, they, they, once again they drew a moustache on the Mona Lisa and, you know, the speech got away with it. But then, um, that's funny, the things you remember. The main thing I remember about that Gallipoli speech that the PM did was getting quite a few texts saying that she looked fantastic and that the tricorn hat she was wearing really worked. And not every comment Julia ever got about her appearance was a positive one. So I must say, in a funny way, that actually sticks in my head more than the speech. But it was a, it's such a, those speeches, on the one hand, they're the best bit of speech writing in a way, they're pure gravy. You don't have to argue with the policy guys. You know, you more or less get a free hit as the speechwriter to work with the Prime Minister on it. On the other hand, there's not a lot new to say at Gallipoli. So it's re- those ones are really a challenge. Like going to Capyong's great because there aren't 500 famous speeches about Capyong. But yeah, going to Gallipoli is pretty hard. And in some ways, Gallipoli and Capyong is the best things that happened on both those occasions for fighting withdrawals. And in some ways, the Gillard Prime Ministership was a three-year fighting withdrawal. So it wasn't... Um, there was a certain poignancy in that. They were strangers in a strange land, men who came from the ends of the earth in an enterprise of hope to end a far-off, dreadful war. But it was not to be. Even at dawn, the shadows were already falling over this fate-filled day. Here, on these beaches and hills, so foreign and yet so familiar, a skilled enemy lay in wait led by a man destined to become a great leader. Eight months later, this campaign ended as it had begun, at dawn. At 3.57 on December 20, 1915, the last diggers quietly slipped away. They did not begrudge the victory of their enemy, which was hard fought for and deserved. So this is a place hallowed by sacrifice and loss. It is, too, a place shining with honour, an honour of the most vivid kind, a place where foes met in equality and respect and attained a certain nobility through their character and their conduct. And that respect, that nobility, was shown when Turkey did something rare in the pages of history, They named this place in honour of the vanquished as Anzac Cove. We therefore owe the Republic of Turkey a profound debt. No nation could have better guarded our shrines or more generously welcomed our pilgrims. A worthy foe has extended to us great privileges. A worthy foe has proved to be an even greater friend. Through Turkey's hospitality, we do today what those who left these shores most dearly hoped. We come back, as we will always come back, to give the best and only gift that can matter any more, our remembrance. We remember what the Anzacs did in war and for what they did to shape our nation in peace. All of us remember because all of us inhabit the freedom the Anzacs won for us these citizen soldiers who came here untested and unknown and who found a deathless monument of valour through the immensity of their sacrifice. 
This dawn will turn to darkness at the ending of today, but the sun will never set on the story of their deeds. Now and forever, we will remember them, lest we forget. And you did tell me in my <laughs> failed attempt to interview yesterday that, that you had some practical <laughs> pages on the ground issues at so, Gallipoli. Tell I, us about I, your own Gallipoli landing. <laughs> I heard, I did hear, uh, one of my predecessors tell you on a previous pod that uh, the one critical thing to do is to print the pages, print the type large enough on the page. And that is yeah, very good piece of basic advice for anyone giving a speech, like 20 point, you know, however big you need, you know. Another good piece of advice is please put page numbers on the pages. Because <laughs> let's say a, someone picked up the pages and then dropped them and then picked them all up again and then put them back on the podium. You wouldn't want to not know that you were reading them out of order, <laughs> especially not if you were on television and people in Australia were watching. And look, maybe if you got away with it, maybe the speech didn't make much sense in the first place. That might be the story. But but yes, if, you, if you've got page numbers on your speech, it's easier to make sure they're in the right order and not out of order when you read them out. So if people watch... Julia Gillard, Gallipoli 2012 on YouTube or on Speakola, will they see, does she hit page five after page three and, and try like to that. adapt? Something but like that. It's sort of odd. It? Now, the section is so short because the, because, the, because the type's so big. Um, you're not actually, it's not like 800 words are out of place. It's a relatively short section that's out of place, but it does swim a bit in the middle and it's not, it's not, it's not reduced to total nonsense, but it is slightly confusing. And it's slightly less confusing if you read the text in the intended order. And, did, and is that the sort of thing where she might just glare at her speechwriters? Like, I'm glad I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I mean, I, I didn't think afterwards that I would say I'm glad I missed the trip to Gallipoli, but I'm glad I missed the trip to Gallipoli. <laughs> and, and what about being the person in the room? You mentioned at the start of this book that you can't say everything that you might want to say, or else mm. you might end up with Don Watson's book, <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> which, uh, by the way, previous guest on the podcast and an amazing guest, and probably my favourite political book as well it's in, it's a beautiful book it's incredible it's um, not his best book his best book is his book about the bush which everyone should read it is like the old testament of australian writing it's unbelievable book but um but yeah recollections of a bleeding heart's a pretty special book i remember it reading it when i was however old i was in my 20s and it's certainly one of those inspiring documents of australian politics so if we look at the turning points of the gillard government and i, I read in your book that she went i think from 50 percent approval to 38 percent approval in one day which is the day <laughs> That, which yeah. is the day that she decided that there would be a price on carbon, not a mm. carbon tax, but mm. a price on carbon, and, and that became this very difficult to sustain argument that you that you pushed on with mm. um, for the next little while. Are you there in the room when that decision's being made? Do you have moments of feeling, "Wow, I'm I'm this close to it"? Yeah, not that one to be honest. Uh, in fact, that was. Might have almost been my first day in the office. Really, it was very early on. It was the announcement that the government would have a. No, there's two things. The announcement that there would be a fixed carbon price was in like October. I think that really was. Might have maybe on my first day in the office. And then, and then a further announcement with detail was followed by the PM going into the Parliament and saying, and it will function like a carbon tax. And that was a, what to be honest, at the time I thought was a clever attempt to avoid being accused of obfuscation and weasel words and game playing. Anyway. Because she'd gone to the election saying that that, that, that it wouldn't be, be a carbon tax, yeah. yeah. So, so um, but no, there are times where you, where you do feel you're in the room for critical decisions. And, um, you know, it was probably in previous policy jobs, you're in, you're in there more. You know, policy directors and, and principal political advisors are often 
present in in moments of great drama. There's a nice picture um, in my book of a bloke called Ryan Batchelor who was recently elected to the Victorian Upper House. Um, I know at that time was the policy director of the Prime Minister. There's a picture of him taken from outside the PM's office and they're facing each other across a coffee table and he's got some papers on his lap and he sort of knees forward and um, it's sort of, it's it's a dream advisor picture, which um, it's a good picture, but I also kind of included it in the in the picture section of the book as a bit of a present for Ryan, actually, because he deserved it. Um, yeah. And the other memorable aspects of the Gillard Prime Ministership is, is that there's Rudd kind of over her shoulder, destabilising mm. and leaking, and and also Abbott and the kind of behaviour, I guess the the sort of stuff I guess that led to the misogyny speech is mm. going on as well, and being fueled by Murdoch Press. Did you have a contribution to? I guess did you have a contribution to the misogyny speech? I mean, there's a one of the five Australian speeches listed in Wikipedia's great speeches is mm. the miso- misogyny speech. Did you write it, Michael? <laughs> I did not write it. <laughs> I didn't think you did. I was there that day. <laughs> Were you in Parliament that day? I was in Parliament that day. I was. That speech was given on a suspension of standing orders or a censure or something during question time. So question time starts at two o'clock. Usually I would have ducked out and grabbed a a sandwich or a coffee or something and then come back and watch the start of question time in the windowless room. And then once it had cooled down a bit, um, get into some work basically and put it on mute. And so I muted it at some point and then was working on some god-awful economic speech for the following week that is unremembered, not in the top five Australian (laughs) speeches in the Wikipedia list. And then uh, at some point I looked over my shoulder, the TV was behind me, and the PM was on her feet and like really going at it. And I thought, oh, this is pretty interesting. And I turned the volume up and I caught like the second half. Um, I was also very offended on behalf of the women of Australia when in the course of uh, uh, this uh, carbon pricing campaign, the leader of the opposition said, when the housewives of Australia need to do what the housewives of Australia need to understand as they do the ironing. Thank you for that painting of women's roles in modern Australia. And then, of course... I was offended too by the sexism, by the misogyny of the Leader of the Opposition cat calling across this table at me as I sit here as Prime Minister. If the Prime Minister wants to, politically speaking, make an honest woman of herself, something that would never have been said to any man sitting in this chair. I was offended when the Leader of the Opposition went outside in the front of Parliament and stood next to a sign that said, Ditch the Witch. I was offended when the Leader of the Opposition stood next to a sign that described me as a man's bitch. I was offended by those things. Misogyny, sexism, every day from this Leader of the Opposition. Every day, in every way, across the time the Leader of the Opposition has sat in that chair and I've sat in this chair, that is all we have heard from him. Then, of course, uh, then of course the Leader of the Opposition uh, comes into this place and says, and I quote, and says, and I quote, Every day the Prime Minister stands in this Parliament to defend this Speaker will be another day of shame for this Parliament, another day of shame for a government which should already have died of shame. Oh, where's that phrase? Well, can I indicate to the Leader of the Opposition the government is not dying of shame. 
My father did not die of shame. What the Leader of the Opposition should be ashamed of is his performance in this parliament and the sexism he brings with it. And it was even then; it was pretty dramatic. Yeah, we had it. It's it's a great example of a speech which is given, on the one hand, in a certain sense, off the cuff. So it's a response to a censure, and so the PM's got twenty minutes or so to work on it. Basically, while they're giving their speech, she's up next, and then, you know, there'd been. But in the nature of the day, you know, sort of what's coming, and so given that the opposition at that time was out attacking the. What they, what even they called the misogyny of the the speaker um, Peter Slipper, the PM had asked her parliamentary staff to put together a list of the things which um, the worst ten things that Abbott had ever done that were wildly misogynistic, and that bit in the middle of the speech where she says, "I was offended when he did this. I was offended yeah. when he did that." She's running through a list in front of her, not the lines, but just those. So she's got dot points in front of her of his ten craziest stuff. So one, there was a little bit of staff work, a fair bit of improvisation. Some good part. Julia was a very experienced parliamentary performer and a terrific parliamentarian, much more than than so, like you know Hawke wasn't wasn't a great parliamentary speaker. Keating was a terrific parliamentarian. Rudd was a much better speaker in different settings. Gillard was a terrific parliamentarian. The, the bit where she says if he wants uh, if he wants to learn about misogyny in Australia, he doesn't need a motion. He needs a mirror. Yeah, such a great. Mo- What's funny is she says he doesn't need a motion. In the background, if you listen closely, you can hear Jenny Macklin going saying he needs a mirror like this before <laughs> Julia says it because it's such a such a natural kind of follow on that you can you can hear this. <laughs> She's a spoiler. Jenny, Jenny anticipates. Like, Jenny, that's the line. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> the PM plows on regardless. It's so good. Um, but then, uh, but on the other hand, I really do think that. Prime Minister Gillard had probably written that speech in the shower while driving, while going for a walk. <laughs> like many, many times I thought, one day I'm going to take this guy's face off. Yeah. And she certainly did. That's what I believe is the path forward for this parliament, not the kind of double standards and political game playing uh, imposed by the Leader of the Opposition. Now looking at his watch, because apparently a woman's spoken too long, I've had him yell at me to shut up in the past. But I will take the remaining I will take the remaining seconds of my speaking time uh, to say to the leader of the opposition, I think the best course for him is to reflect on the standards he's exhibited in public life, on the responsibility he should take for his public statements, on his close personal connection with Peter Slipper, on the hypocrisy he has displayed in this House today. And on that basis, because of the Leader of the Opposition's motivations, this Parliament today should reject this motion and the Leader of the Opposition should think seriously about the role of women in public life and in Australian society because we are entitled to a better standard than this. Yeah. And did you have a few goes at that? Did you write attack speeches? Oh yeah, well I had not so much not so much in the PMO role because really those sorts of parliamentary speeches typically they are more or less done from a handful of notes. Partly just in the nature of them, they're done at very short notice. I mean I had written often what you should do is write a, a top and a tail for a speech like that. So you give them an introduction, you give them a conclusion, you give them top points in the middle. And sometimes you insert that kind of attack section into some other speech, I suppose. There'd been, like, don't forget the misogyny speech and that kind of insane motion against Slipper and all the rest of it and all the crassness of which Slipper was more than guilty came at the end of this very long build-up. You know, we really were frogs in a pot. And from before the time Gillard became Prime Minister, there'd just been 
this pattern of denigration and abuse which got more intense, more frequent, more widespread. And everyone from the PM down really kind of um, thought it was smarter to let it ride. She's spoken about this at length, you know. Um, and then eventually she decided it really wasn't smarter to let her ride. And there'd been a bit of preparation done in the preceding weeks. Because his thing came at the end of some of the worst stuff. The Northern Territory beef event where someone talked about an unproductive old cow and the revolting Alan Jones' comments about her father, late father. and Sort of it was getting more and more intense. And through a period where there's also, like, in some ways, more ultimately horrible things happening, but they really were part of the atmosphere too. So around that time, Malala Yousafzai was shot on a bus in, in um, Afghanistan. Around that time, uh, an ABC journalist in Melbourne was murdered walking home and, um, and was being searched for um, for days and days. There was a lot of... It wasn't only in politics that this sort of... that a real sense that something was quite, quite wrong with men, basically. <laughs> uh, and on the other hand, that people were saying things were wrong with women. Um, that was really building... It was sort of a moment, not only in politics, but it touched certainly more widely on, on women in Australian life. And and within a day, it's in the New York Times and there's yeah. 10, 10 million views on Facebook and, yeah. on, um, and on YouTube. I mean, what was the... Did you, did you sort of... Do you remember a personal exchange with the Prime Minister afterwards? Like, well, I was like you might not need me particularly. <laughs> you like, can't pretty well. Do you remember yeah. just giving her a pat on the back? She or? never doubted this. <laughs> the truth is, the reason that the only reason they need speechwriters is because speechwriting is a very inefficient use of their time, right? Like, yeah. like so that's that's why they need speechwriters. So, like, you can't have the Prime Minister spending a day and a half writing four thousand words about health policy, can you? Yeah, so, no. so in a sense, it's uh, she, she always knew that. But um, no, it was it's it was humbling in one way. And look, we got. I got an email from a bloke I'd worked with the previous year in the Obama White House. They sent me an email the following morning just saying, wow. Um, and on the bottom of this email was a trail of like a thread, basically, and the YouTube clip had been going around their, their office, you know. Uh, that was pretty cool. And, yeah, security guards in Pakistan or India, then following week one, I think it was in India, security guards had photos with her. She went to India almost straight away after that trip. It was the following week or the week after. It, it was really something, yeah. And if you were to take us to the end, I mean, I mentioned Rudd being in the background um, and mm. destabilising for much of the Prime Ministership, but what was the... Did you write uh, the speech in those final hours? Did you write her last speech? I tried. I um, wrote... I had been working on... You, you, we often call it the B speech. You know, the A speech is when you win and the B speech is when you lose. And so from early 2013, I'd always had some notes there for a B speech in case we needed it. So it would get it out and polish it in grim hours, you know. And then so on in twenty in the middle of twenty thirteen, yeah, after the PM and her supporters went off to caucus where there was a caucus ballot and ultimately Rudd was elected Labour leader and became Prime Minister. I sent her and the Chief of Staff a, a draft of a B speech which she was going to give as the opening statement of a press conference, basically. So I mean it wasn't in some not a very formal setting, but but she'd give some planned remarks. And, you know, it was a nice way of writing her a letter, telling her how much I loved her, basically. Um, she uh, she didn't use any of it. She had her own <laughs> things to say, and, and I, you know, as, as you'd expect. And what she said was great, you know, it'd be easier for the next one or the one after that. And she said some, some really good, memorable things. I want to just say a few remarks about being the first woman to serve in this position. There's been a lot of analysis about the so-called gender wars, uh, me playing the so-called gender card because heavens knows no one noticed I was a woman until I raised it. Uh, but against that background, I do want to say about uh, all of these issues 
the reaction to being the first female Prime Minister does not explain everything about my Prime Ministership, nor does it explain nothing about my Prime Ministership. I've been a little bit bemused by those colleagues in the newspapers who have admitted that I have suffered more uh, pressure as a result of my gender than other Prime Ministers in the past, but then concluded that it had zero effect on my political position or the political position of the Labor Party. It doesn't explain everything. It doesn't explain nothing. It explains some things. And it is for the nation to think in a sophisticated way about those shades of grey. What I am absolutely confident of is it will be easier for the next woman and the woman after that and the woman after that, and I'm proud of that. And, and on, on that last day, do you remember what went on in the office? What you what, what? I was slowing down all day. It's interesting. It's coming up on 10 years before too long. Um, it was a funny day. We came in not completely sure we were cooked, although we thought we probably were, but we weren't 100% sure. And then, um, you know, you can sort of... One of the things that happens when you're really under the pump in politics is that you start getting texts from mates, more or less saying, chin up, hope you're going all right. <laughs> you start to think, oh, geez, I'm in strife here. <laughs> uh, so I started to get a few of those texts. And uh, during that day, there was sort of the, the daily, the live television Sky News style stuff was reporting that a petition was circulating to call for a spill. And was it or wasn't it? There was a bit of mystery or was these people pushing run to run or what? So anyway, we were sort of watching all that and by about lunch it was pretty clear that there was going to be a ballot after question time where we weren't going to get one we weren't going to get up in it either. So so that's when I apart from yeah, putting the finishing touches on the PM's B speech, I started making some notes for my own you know, eventually I'd no doubt give the give the staff a rev up at some in some pub in Canberra sometime in the subsequent days. Did get some use eventually. So, you know, we we sort of sat around doing stuff like watching the final scenes of um Butch and Sundance, but Butch casting in the Sundance Kid, where they, where they sit there and say, "Can you see a man with a hat out there?" And he says, "No." And he says, "Oh, good. I thought we were in trouble." And then they, <laughs> and then they run out. And it all turns to sepia, you know. <laughs> sit around and watch the, um, watch the uh, last episode of Blackadder. You know, not the whole, not the whole thing, but you know, the, the last sort of five minutes of the final episode of Blackadder and stuff. So it was a bit of, a bit of graveyard humour at the end. Yeah. And then once she'd gone around to the, we all sort of wanted to look like we were busy and working until she left to go around to caucus and then we then we all sort of sat around and that's where we could open a beer basically and waited to hear the news yeah well the book's really wonderful i've been spending the last 24 hours since i turned up here without a microphone <laughs> reading the gillard project my thousand days of despair and hope it's not recollections of a bleeding heart i guess i mean i in, in, they're very different books recollections is such a i mean i think uh keating and watson have fallen out because it was so detailed and emotionally detailed i guess and revelatory as to mood and personality of the people involved you you must have approached this differently this is much more of a I guess it's not authorised. It's not a sense that Julia's read, reading it over your shoulder, but there's a sense that it's 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 less personal. Yeah, certainly. I um, was, in fact, I, I suppose the, my book came out in 2015, uh, and I wrote a lot of it in the first half of 2014. And around that time, there was actually a bit of a, a new flare up in the in the Keating Watson dispute, whatever <laughs> that's there's to talk about. But the point is that I was quite conscious of that strain between those two while I was writing it. And I certainly, uh, I would rather have not had a book than not be able to talk to Julia Gillard on the phone, you know. So, um, 
So I was really conscious of that. But equally, I mean, I, I had an easier task in a sense because Julia wasn't melancholy and didn't um, I wasn't going to get annoyed when I said she was melancholy because I wasn't going to say she was melancholy. So, so um, well, they're so, fighting over which one of them is melancholy. Yes. Don and and, and Paul. And it seems yeah. like there's possibly an obvious. There answer, might be something. But... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mate, a little of column A, a little of column B. Yeah. Um, now, but one of the pleasures of the book was writing a chapter more or less about what was Julia Gillard like because she's a wonderful person. It was great to be around and people didn't really see that, I suppose. Many people didn't see that outside the building or on the tam- on the TV screen. So it was fun to share some my very direct insights into her personality and a lot of people, particularly since 2013, have come to like and admire Julie Gillard a lot, which is good and deserved. And so I did enjoy sharing how I see her and how I see her place in the Labor succession and in the prime ministerial succession how how i think what she what who she is like and what she's what similarities she says with her predecessors and her sentiment yeah but no i certainly it, you know i didn't want to write my memoir i wanted to write a book about julia gillard's prime ministership and i also wasn't writing a biography of julia gillard like it's about the work she did that some of us helped her with so it's it's quite a personal book about me in some respects but yeah, I mean, I didn't write about my own marriage, much less her relationships. You know, it's a it's a it's a book about our, uh, her as prime minister. But I hope it's I hope it does say some interesting things about what she's like as a person. I I, I loved it, and as you said to me yesterday, I think I've written the funniest book about the Gillard prime ministership. Your competition being Wayne Swan and Julia Gillard, <laughs> yeah. and I can promise you, Michael Cooney, this is the funniest book it's, about it's, yeah, the look, Gillard. It's probably prime funnier than Combo's book or Macklin's book too. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that I think they'd probably accept that. You know, it's, and, like, and it's not the most important book about the Gillard prime ministership, but I hope it's the funniest. Some beautiful reviews as well. Thanks so much, Michael, for chatting to me. I, I'm not even sure if I'm playing a feature speech that you've written or whether I've played speeches already through this whole episode. So I'll have to work that out as we go along. I like the idea that um, that it, that you'll choose the speech that works best rather than me picking one. And also like the idea that you know it'll be a bit of a mystery as to who wrote what and how much was me and how much was Carl and how much was Sean Kelly and how much was Julia Gillard. And I, th- I think that actually that's that's in a way as it should be. I like that. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, mate. Well, if you are one of the 5,525 subscribers at news.speakola.com, you'll know that some of the newsletters that have been sent out in recent weeks include Produce Your Voice, Mr. Hughes. That one was about the life of Betty Boothroyd, the Speaker of the UK House of Commons, who, who died this week, aged 93. I did a piece profiling her. I did a piece on artificial intelligence and speeches. Most of them were robot speeches in movies, including Johnny Number 5 from Short Circuit. Number 5, alive, no disassemble. But there was also a legitimately AI speech delivered by a robot called Amica doing her version. Is it a her? No, it's an it. Its version of the King's speech. I've done a newsletter on Oliver Stone's speech to the Writers Guild of America. That's an excellent speech. There's my daughter Polly's speech for me at my 50th birthday. That's up there. So to sign up, go to news.speakola.com. And if you go paid, well, you'll probably make my day. Speech of the week. Well, I have no doubt that Michael Cooney 
is a brilliant speaker himself. You only have to listen to the podcast episode to get a sense of how eloquent he is, and he writes them for a living, so I think he has all the tools in the kit bag, but I don't have audio of a Michael Cooney, and so we've been focusing on Julia Gillard, and the one I, the one I said I might put up is the Mick Young speech. It's a really great speech on the page, but then I couldn't find any audio of it. I forgot that I hadn't put audio up on Speak Ola. And so one that has audio, and one that we did talk about in the episode, and one which is an excellent speech, is the speech that Julia Gillard delivered to Congress, to the joint sitting of the Senate and the House in 2011. Michael spoke about the trip away, and it's a wonderful speech. It's quite a long speech. I normally put speeches up in their entirety, but this one I think I'll put up in just two sections. But you'll hear enough to get a sense of what Michael Cooney got up to at Blair House in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. Mr Speaker, Mr President pro tempore, distinguished members of the Senate and the House, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I'm the fourth Australian Prime Minister to address you. Like them, I take your invitation as a great honour. Like them, I accept it on behalf of Australia. Since 1950, Australian Prime Ministers Robert Menzies, Bob Hawke and John Howard have come here, speaking for all the Australian people, through you to all the people of the United States. They each came with a simple message, a message which has been true in war and peace, a message which has been true in hardship and prosperity, in the Cold War and in the New World, a message I repeat to you today. Distinguished members of the Senate and the House, you have a true friend down under. parents' generation, the defining image of America was the landing at Normandy. Your boys at Prontahoe risking everything to help free the world. For my own generation, the defining image of America was the landing on the moon. My classmates and I were sent home from school to watch the great moment on television. I always remember thinking that day, Americans can do anything. helped free the world of my parents' generation. Americans inspired the world of my own youth. I stand here and I see before me the very same brave and free people. I believe you can do anything still. There is a reason the world always looks to America. Your great dream Life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness inspires us all. 
Those of you who have spent time with Australians know that we're not given to overstatement. By nature, we're laconic speakers, and by conviction, we are realistic thinkers. In both of our countries, real mates talk straight. We mean what we say, so let me say this to you. You have an ally in Australia, an ally for war and peace, an ally for hardship and prosperity, an ally for the 60 years past, and Australia is also an ally for all of the years to come. In both of our countries, true friends stick together. Our nations do this, and our people do this as well. Nothing better tells this truth than the story of two firefighters. Many Australians and Americans worked together in the late 1990s to be ready to protect the 2000 Sydney Olympics from possible terrorist attack. One group of Australians spent two months in New York, training and working, including a long time with New York's Fire Department Rescue One. They worked hard together and became more than colleagues. They became mates. So when it was time to go home, the Australian commander gave Rescue One's chief his Australian Army slouch hat. And the chief presented the Australians with a battle-scarred fire helmet, dated December 1998 and signed by members of the Rescue One crew, including Kevin Dowdell. Three years later, Kevin Dowdell was one of the hundreds of New York firefighters killed when the towers came down. Kevin led his men in. His remains were never found. But that helmet was in Australia. An Aussie firefighter, Rob Frey, found Kevin's sons. James Dowdell is one of New York's bravest, a firefighter like his father before him. Patrick Dowdell is wearing his country's uniform in Afghanistan. Rob came to America to give James the helmet his father signed, a precious possession, a last link to a father lost. And I give you their story, a precious possession too. These two men are here today. Rob, James, good on you. James, we are so proud of what you represent. Your story says it all about the friendship between Australia and the United States, together in the hardest of times, friends for the future. When our alliance was signed 60 years ago, the challenges of the space age were still to come. The challenges of terrorism were still to come. 
For 60 years, leaders from Australia and the United States have looked inside themselves and found the courage, the courage to face those challenges. And after 60 years, we do the same today. To protect our peoples, to share our prosperity, to safeguard our future. For ours is a friendship for the future. It has been from its founding and it remains so today. You have a friend in Australia and you have an ally and we know what that means. In both our countries, true friends stick together. In both our countries, real mates talk straight. So as a friend, I urge you only this, be worthy to your own best traditions. Be bold. In 1942, John Curtin, my predecessor, my country's great wartime leader, looked to America. I still do. This year, you mark the centenary of President Reagan's birth. He remains a great symbol of American optimism. The only greater symbol of American optimism is America itself. The eyes of the world are still upon you. Your city on a hill cannot be hidden. Your brave and free people have made you the masters of recovery and reinvention. As I stand before you in this, this cradle of democracy, I see a nation that changed the world, a nation that has known remarkable days. I firmly believe you are the same people who amazed me when I was a small girl by landing on the moon. On that great day, I believed Americans could do anything. I believe that still. Well, that's it for another episode. Thank you, Michael Cooney. His book, The Gillard Project, My Thousand Days of Despair and Hope. It's out through Penguin Books. Highly recommended. Michael's now out of the daily grind of politics and is working at Morris Blackburn Lawyers in Melbourne in stakeholder engagement. So you can find him there. Thank you to David Bridie for the theme song. Thank you to everyone who has signed up at news.speakola.com or patreon.com forward slash speakola. There's also a donation page at speakola.com. Thank you if you have joined in and given a small amount each month to keep us going. It's much appreciated. It is just me who makes the podcast. I do the sourcing of the guests, the interviewing, the question writing, the editing, the uploading, the marketing. It's a very small Christmas party. Thank you to docplay.com for the 10-week sponsorship. Much appreciated. docplay.com forward slash racks forward slash speakola. That link's in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening. Send in your theme song entry. Name all the speeches. Get a book and a free membership. Tony at speakola.com. 